Thank you, Howard. I uh, was reminded this week of, as y'all come on in, there's some good seats down in, in the front. Evidently, I've been spitting while I talk, and <laughs> people have decided it's not safe in the first uh, few rows. Um, so if anybody needs a lesson, Mark Craver's got some and would be glad to walk them down. I was reminded this week of some of the positives and some of the negatives of having a class like this. And uh, um, it, it, it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about because I want to try and make it, it the most valuable thing I possibly can. And, uh, you know, some of the positives uh, um, we can set aside for a minute, um, but one of the negatives is this is such a, a difficult class to, to be a part of because it almost becomes a, a lecture hall. It's hard for me to do this in a question and answer method because you may have questions or I may have a question and people in the back can't really participate very well because I can't see you well enough or hear you well enough. And if people up in the front answer, then y'all back there can't hear. So it makes it kind of tough. Also, we have a lot of people that come in here, and this isn't like the most social, intimate setting. So if like you're looking for a shoulder to cry on or just somebody to be gracious to you, uh, it's kind of hard to do in a class format like this. So I want to urge everybody this morning to please take time, either when you're coming in or when Lewis is doing the visitors or when you're leaving, to meet someone around you that you don't know, just enough to say, hey, I think I know you, but I'm not sure, or you know, glance at their name tag when they're not looking so you can act like you knew them all along, say, oh, Fred Flintstone, Good to, or Rocky, or whatever. Good to meet you, and, uh, or see you again, or something. But take a moment and do that so that people will know that this isn't just an auditorium where we sit and audit a class on history, but that God is here, and that God loves everybody in here. And God is appreciative that you are here. And if we're his voice and we're his hands and we're his feet, we need to express God's appreciation for everybody that's in here. I'll tell you from me, if I could go around person to person, I'd like to shake your hand or hug your neck and tell you, I appreciate you being in here. It is uh, uh, something that I take very seriously uh, uh, that you would give this much time to studying. Now, that's aside. Point number two, and we got three quick points and then we go into the lesson. Point number two, next Sunday starts a three-week emphasis here at the church on evangelism. And Scott Ryling has done a great job at teaching not only the staff here, but the deacons and, and the Sunday school leaders and others uh, an approach that's going to be taught in all Sunday school classes. Now, you might be thinking, oh, well, that means I get to take a vacation from church history for three weeks. Nah, you don't. Then you might be thinking, oh darn, that means I don't get to hear the evangelism stuff. Yes, you do. Here's what we're going to do in this class, which has got me very excited, and I hope you, you uh, uh, I hope it's, hope it's as good for you as it is for me. Um, we, uh, uh, the first week I'll teach, that's next Sunday, God willing, and what I'm going to do is do the overview or the, the background information that kind of gets people into the the spirit, if you will, or the understanding of the approach that's being used for evangelism. The nice thing about it is, because it's an overview class and Scott has encouraged us to teach it in whatever manner we want, I don't have to follow the script, if you will. Uh, Scott and I sat down last Tuesday morning and, and spent some time going through it. 
And what I'm going to do is teach a church history class next Sunday. It's one that I've needed to teach at some point in time. Probably teaching it a week or two earlier than I would have. But it's basically, okay, the church grows from a handful of people at the foot of the cross in 30 A.D. to the 200 A.D. being the preeminent religious institution around the globe, at least in the Mediterranean world of, of Rome. How did it grow so fast? What happened? I mean, that's evangelism. And so what we're going to do is take a snapshot view of church history and see what it was about the church. It's one thing for a church to grow when all of the indicators are pointing in the right direction and it's a great thing to do. I mean, you want to grow a church, I'll tell you how to do it. You give away stuff, okay? That, that'll get a bunch of people in the door, okay? Free food, okay? Short sermon, three minutes, free food, okay? <laughs> we would have them breaking down the doors. Now, it wouldn't do much good once they did because we'd quickly run out of money because we're giving away free food and we wouldn't have a sermon so no one would be giving money. And so it would not be a cool thing, but, I mean, that would grow a church real fast. You can look at some churches today that grow hugely because they don't really preach much, and think, but be that as it may. Um, <clears throat> I'm just here to tell you the early church grew in spite of the fact that you could get killed if you went, that society looked down on you as if you went. It wasn't good for business. Um, uh, there were all sorts of things that spoke against the church growing, and yet it just mushroomed like nothing else in history. And so we're going to look at why. What was particular about the early church that caused it to do that within the overview scheme of how we can emulate and do that as well? So that starts next week. I'll do the first week, and then Scott Riling has graciously agreed to come in and to teach us the next two weeks out of this book. You'll get a handout of a book. You'll get a New Testament that's a really good-looking, cool New Testament. And uh, it's going to be a wonderful three weeks. When we're done with that, we're going to come back here, and we're going to kick it up another notch, uh, uh, and we're going to see this church history start to sing. Now, um, we had a third point, kind of an overview point, and I don't remember what it was. That's a pretty good sermon this morning. Did y'all like that sermon? I'll tell you, you know, it was very touching, and he did a good job at, at making it informational and touching as well and inspirational. It was a good sermon. Um, I don't have a touching class for you today. I have a class that, if I were to characterize it after listening to that sermon, I would, you know, he did a really good job at making everything with a C, Right? Okay. He didn't have this in there because this would have required like a P. Okay. But another way to finish well, and maybe it's sort of what he said, but preparation. Preparation has got to be part of it as well. And, and so this is a preparation class if you want to finish well. Because this class is about studying the Bible. Okay. Now, I have a question. Have you ever wondered what... Scripture is. What are you laughing at, Lewis? Oh, yeah, that's Lewis on a good hair day. Um, have you ever wondered, who's, who's, who's ever wondered what, a pa what, pa what does this passage of Scripture mean? Have you ever wondered that? Just raise your hand. Class participation. Okay, most of you. Um, think about it if you were in the new church. Think about it if you were in the church, oh, let's date it 150. You don't have a New Testament yet. You may have a couple of Paul's writings that have been put together, or you may not. I'm going to put you in Alexandria, Egypt, 
Okay? And it's the early church. We'll scale back. Let's don't even go to 150. Let's go to, say, 75 A.D. John hadn't even written Revelation yet. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John hadn't been written. Paul's stuff hadn't made it around. Some of the Gospels hadn't made it around. Luke hadn't written Acts yet, or if he has, it hadn't been circulated very far. And here's my question of you. When you start reading your Bible, which is just going to be the Old Testament, you might get some things that really cause you to question. What does this mean? For example, Old Testament. You can't eat pig. It's Luke 11, 7 and 8. You must not eat... Now, pig doesn't sound like a good biblical word, so sometimes they translate it swine. Okay? But it's pig. You're not supposed to eat pig. And so you're sitting there, you're an early Christian, and you're not supposed to eat pig. And yet, we know pig is ham. Now, I went to eat lunch with a Hebrew professor one time who was uh, raised in an Orthodox Jewish house. Tuvia Klein was his name. And we went to eat, and he ordered a ham sandwich. I looked at him. I said, Professor Klein, what are you doing ordering a ham sandwich? You're Jewish. He looked at me, and he says, Mark this down. Moses never would have forbade ham if he had tasted it the way my wife makes it. Okay, so you're there, you're early church, you got your Bible. It clearly says not to eat pigs, so what do you do? To eat or not to eat? That is the question. What do you do? Who eats ham? Why? The Old Testament says not to eat pig. Oh, we write it off because it's the Old Testament? There's a lot of things in the Old Testament that aren't talked about in the New Testament that we still say are wrong. John made a special point of showing Peter a vision. Ah, she brings up Acts. For those of you in the back, she said, God made a point of showing Peter a vision. She's talking about Peter before he goes to the house of Cornelius, the first Gentile conversion. God gives him a vision. And this tablecloth lays down and all this food's on it and Peter's told to eat. Peter says, I can't eat that. It's not kosher. God says, I made it. That makes it kosher. Eat it. And Peter says the vision was one to show Peter that if God made a person, they could receive the gospel, whether that person was kosher, i.e. Jewish, or not. Okay? So maybe out of that dream, we think that means now all of a sudden anything to eat is fair game? Maybe. But I'll tell you this, early church probably didn't have that story because Peter told it where Peter went. Luke recorded it in Acts. But if we're 75 A.D. in Egypt, maybe we hadn't got Acts yet. Maybe Peter never made it down. So you take away that experience of Peter. And why are you eating ham? It was a question. It was a serious question. So I'm going to throw this out there for you. What do you do with difficult passages in the Bible when you come across them? Maybe the ham thing's not difficult because we've been eating it a long time and we've got Peter's vision. But what do you do when you find a difficult passage in the Bible? Dr. Bob said to me the other day, he says, all right, I'm reading this thing. I said, good. 
He says, okay, well, I'll hit this stuff about Noah and his sons coming. And his, one of his sons sees Noah naked. This is after the flood has subsided. And the other son comes and, and covers him up and Noah curses his boy, his boy, for seeing him naked. He says, what, what gives with that? He was a harsh guy. Good question. And I'll tell you what else is interesting to me, instead of just sitting there listening when we're in a group of people and Dr. Bob brings it up, is for me to be quiet and listen to everybody else talk. Because different people have different ideas. What do you do when you come across a difficult passage of Scripture? Do we do uh, what's, oh, that's in the Old Testament. We don't have to follow that anymore. There are whole churches that have traditions where they say, hey, anything in the Old Testament, we well, no, that was nailed to the cross. Now we live with the New Testament. Well, that's not true. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill it. And not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law. So if he didn't come to abolish it, where does it, what, what do we do? Who's honoring the Sabbath? I try. Becky will say, take out the garbage. I can't. It's Saturday. <laughs> I would love to, but love of God, love of wife, you know. <sighs> Mow the yard. Well, it's funny you should say that. Only day I'm home is Saturday. That's Saturday as in Sabbath. Well, no, it doesn't really work my house. But... Um, what do you do with these passages? You say, that's the Old Testament? Maybe you say, how about this? I heard this one time. Oh, I've heard this a bunch. We know better than Paul. Now, we go to a Baptist church, and in Baptist churches, you don't typically say that. But I had a good friend, or still do. And when you show this friend certain passages of Scripture, especially if it's Paul, Paul says this and this and this and this, she says, well... So, that geek lived 1,900 years ago. We've had a lot to learn since then. Why are we going to listen to Paul? Or how about this one? That's symbolic. That's symbolic. That's not literal. What about the passage in the New Testament that says women aren't supposed to wear pearls? Are those pearls you have on around your neck? They are good-looking pearls. I bought my wife pearls. But women aren't supposed to wear them, according to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament. Or makeup. Any of you women wear makeup? Thank you. <laughs> but there's some scriptural indication you're not supposed to. Which brings up another point. Why don't the women all have their heads covered? Now, Castell's mother always wears a hat. Lorraine's got a hat on. Okay, outside of those women, the rest of y'all are going to hell. <laughs> I, I, I mean, and, and men, okay, at least everybody's got their hair cut, those that still have it. All right, I mean, what do you say? That's symbolic? What do you do with these difficult passages of Scripture? How about this one? Well, the Bible has its share of errors. What we need to do is we need to focus on the gospel and not look to the Bible for what it may say about other things, and just accept, or how about this? I don't want to say the Bible has errors because I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. So I'm just going to ignore those passages that are troublesome that seem to be error and pretend as if they don't exist. 
What do you do? Let me, let me get more specific. Let's look at creation for a moment. That, by the way, is the roof of the Sistine Chapel. As God, as Adam. This is the creation painting by Michelangelo, right? Famous painting. Okay. Is the creation account literally true? I mean, what do, what do we do about all of these dinosaur bones and, and fossils? And what do we do about this seeming compelling evidence of, if not full-scale evolution, at least certainly some things that indicate it may not have gone quite the way the story is accounted. And if you look at it in detail, doesn't Genesis 1 and the seven-day creation seem to be contradicted a bit by Genesis 2 and how man and woman were created and then the animals and then, you know, and how do you get day and night before you have a son? So, you want to say it's literally true, but do you want to say, well, maybe it's just wrong. You know, creation, they, they, they got it wrong. They were just taking what was a common myth in that area, and that's what they believed, but now we know better. Or maybe you want to say it's, it's symbolic. You know, it's not, it's not literally what happened. It's, it's a symbolic, and this can kind of blend over all of these. These aren't real fine lines. You can kind of say, well, what it really is is, it's there to teach the lessons of God made man to be in God's image and man sinned and fell from God and that sin created a gulf that had to be bridged in some way. But man was made for more than life, more than, than this life that we have and the earth is under a curse and man's under a curse. Now, I believe that that's what the Genesis story teaches. And some people say that's all it teaches. Don't look for it as, as science. Some people say, oh no, it's accurate as science. Other people just say, well, I just think the whole thing's just a bunch of fable. What do you do? Where do you land on this? These are probing questions of Scripture and probing questions that students of Scripture can rightfully ask. I am quick to say, quick to say, I believe it's appropriate to ask these questions. I don't think we should fear it. I don't think we need to fear what Scripture says. I don't think we need to, to approach Scripture afraid that our faith is going to be shattered if we ask these compelling and hard questions. Because uh, I, I think that God is a God of reason. And I think that Scripture is His Word. And I think that it's reasonable to ask these questions and reasonable to expect not perfect answers, but expect at least satisfaction as we look at it. All right? So, think about these questions. Would your answers to these questions change depending on, let's say you're a, a Bible scholar, you're going to seminary, okay? Would your answers to these questions change where you went to seminary? Would it make a difference if you went to a Catholic seminary or if you went to a Baptist seminary? Would it make any difference if you went to Southwestern or if you went to Baylor? Would it make any difference what seminary you went to? I think it would, don't you? Yeah, because there are some that are more literal and some that are more liberal or whatever the contrary. Some more conservative, some more literal. Some more, li you, you follow what I mean? Okay, so let's decide. Would it matter where you went to seminary? All right, we're going to all go to seminary on this this morning. 
Where should we go? Where around the world? Where does anybody want to go? Oh, you want to go to the Middle East? Caramba. So do I. All right, let's go to the Middle East. Now, where should we go? Where should we go? Where should we go? Uh, want to go to Egypt? So do I. Let's go to Egypt. Okay, where to go? Where to go? Where to go? We want to pick a good seminary that's been around for a long time, okay? How about Alexandria? They had a seminary. They called it, a, well, it's translated a catechetical school. But it was a seminary. We don't need that fancy word for it. We'll call it a seminary. Although it did teach things other than religion. And you didn't have to be a Christian to go there. But it was run by the church. All right? And um, um, I want us to look at the Alexandrian seminary and the way they taught answers to these questions this morning because it was a huge influence in Christianity. Um, to do this, we're going to break it apart in kind of three manners. First, we're going to look at Alexandria's history, the history of the town a little bit. We've talked about it in this class before, and so I want to just kind of pull up all of those memories, dredge them up from your brain, and make sure we've got them front and center while we look at it. Then in addition to that, we're going to look at a, a writing called the Epistle, or Letter, of Barnabas. Did Barnabas write it? We don't really know. Most scholars don't think so, but they don't really know. The a letter was probably written around 70 to 80 A.D. That's when Lightfoot and some other heavy-duty scholars date it. Could be as late as 130, but it was probably around 70 to 79 A.D., okay? So we're going to look at the Epistle of Barnabas, and then we're going to look at the seminary, the Alexandria Catechetical School. And we'll look at two fellows that ran it, Clement and Origen, okay? Um, we've got 22 minutes. Let's blaze a trail. Alexandria. What a great international port town. That's a picture of it today. It's got a harbor on the east and a harbor on the west with this spit that comes out. So you would always have, remember they used to have sailboats. They didn't have motorboats back then. You'd always have a harbor that would work with whatever the wind was. And while this is a big old fort that was built in the 14th century, before that was a lighthouse that was built way back before the time of Christ. In fact, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this lighthouse that supposedly you could see from 30 miles out the light. They'd build a big fire in the base actually and had big mirrors. And so the fire would be caught in the mirrors and it would project out onto the sea. It was an international port town, originally just a little scrawny fishing village when Alexander the Great conquered Egypt. And Alexander the Great in 332 said this would be a super port town. And he brought in one of the best town architects. They laid out grid streets and they built a town there at the order of Alexander the Great and they named it Alexander the Great or Alexandria. <laughs> Founded 332. Because it was a big port town and because it was founded by Alexander the Great and because he made it uh, uh, one of his cities, it grew quickly and it grew prolifically. It was a huge place of international culture and learning. Um, Alexander the Great himself, his body was buried there. Um, long story, they kind of stole it from another place where it was, but they managed to pilfer it and get it there. Um, probably uh, uh, good evidence that Mark, who wrote Matthew, Mark, Mark, that Mark, John Mark, went with Paul, 
remember? Bad at the start, got better, it finished well, uh, that mark. Um, good indication that at least his skull is there, if not the rest of his body. Um, because uh, uh, supposedly Mark is one of the early founders of, or at least uh, some believe Mark actually founded the seminary. At least Mark uh, seems to have been an early person to work in Alexandria. It is um, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, remember? Anybody see the movie? Okay, this is where they wooed each other, Alexandria. Huge town. By the time that we're looking at, by the time of Paul, it's the second largest city in the world behind only Rome itself. It's got a library of over a half a million volumes. That's a lot of scrolls. Over a half million, the largest library in the world. And so here it is. And, and, and one of the noteworthy figures to come out of Alexandria was a Jew named Philo. Philo's a Greek name. It means friend. But he was Jewish. And Philo lived at the same time Jesus did, at the same time Paul did. Was born probably a little over a decade earlier than Jesus, around 15 B.C. Lived till 50 A.D., so he outlived Jesus. But uh, um, he was one of probably a half million to a million Jews that lived in Alexandria. Jews found Egypt very accessible. Whenever the Jews were getting persecuted, they could flee to Egypt and get there real quick. So when the Babylonians were coming to take them, they'd go down to Egypt. You know, that goes back as far as Abraham. Abraham went down to Egypt during a famine, remember? Joseph and others, they all go down to Egypt. So Egypt was close to the Promised Land if you look at a map. Philo of Alexandria is there. It was in Alexandria where the Old Testament was first translated from Hebrew into Greek, called the Septuagint, Greek for 70. So Philo is there, and Philo's a Jew, but he's also a Greek philosopher. And Philo's trying to figure out how to take Greek philosophy and merge it with his Bible, his Old Testament. And he does so. I mean, Philo's convinced that Moses uh, uh, and the re writings of Moses were uh, what uh, Plato read. And Aristotle, that was what enlightened the Greek world to philosophy. And so he merges together the Old Testament with Greek philosophy. And when he does it, there's a lot of the Old Testament that doesn't make sense with Greek philosophy. There's a lot of the Old Testament that seems to be difficult to read. The creation story that we were talking about, those aren't new problems that just we look at. Certainly the evolution aspect uh, uh, doesn't date back then, but the inconsistencies or the difficulties with it, that's something that Philo looked at. You know, the eating habits and the dietary laws, how do you merge those together? Well, what Philo did is he read the Old Testament as a collection of allegories. The Old Testament was not to be read... I have a Bible here. You get your Old Testament... Don't read this just like uh, literal, okay? This is all a bunch of allegories. So you just got to spiritualize them and figure out what they mean. Let me give you an example. Vengeance of Cain. Do you all know the Genesis 4 passage? Hold on, I think I have it up here. If anyone kills Cain, because, you know, Cain's being sent out because he's killed Abel, and Cain's worried about his own life says, yeah, well, people are going to now kill me. And God pronounces this. 
He says uh, in 4.15, But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he'll suffer vengeance seven times over. Okay? Do you know what uh, Philo said about that? He says this is an allegory. This is like uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. You know how that's an allegory? It's got like Jesus is Aslan. Okay? You know what Cain is? He said, Cain is your mind, your thinking, your rationality, your reasoning abilities. That's Cain. Okay? So now think about it. If someone kills Cain, your mind, vengeance, seven times over. Do you know where that comes from? Well, seven. Seven are your five senses. You sense the hearing, sense of sight, sense of smell, sense of taste, and sense of touch. Okay, you got those five. And then he added two more. He says, and speaking and procreating, offspring. Okay? He says, those are the seven things physically that you do. And those are governed by your mind to some degree or another. And so if someone's mind is killed or damaged or destroyed, it affects their ability to see right or to do right or to feel or to procreate or to speak or to taste. That's what he got out of that. See, we read that typically and we say, boy, we look at it literally. Okay, I hope no one kills Cain. If they do, they're going to suffer vengeance seven times. He looks at it and says, no, 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 no. That's not at all what it's about. You know, it, it's a, it's a, uh, you, you got to get a little bit smarter when you read these things. Get, get your spiritual life on steroids because you got to get to the allegory. And that's what he taught. Now, Interesting, Philo has interaction with the church according to Eusebius, who's a historian that's writing about 315 A.D. He's one of the first early church historians. And he believes that Philo, if, didn't, if Philo didn't actually become a Christian, at least he interacted with Peter in Rome. Uh, Philo had two Christian communities that he wrote about. And scholars dispute whether or not that's true. There's no way for us to know. Some scholars believe that Paul actually was influenced by Philo. Some believe that John was influenced by Philo. Again, hard to determine. But Paul certainly did, at times, use the allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament. He did in the book of Galatians when he talks about um, Abraham having children by two different women, Hagar and Sarah. And one child, Isaac, was the child of promise. The other child was the child of slavery from the handmaiden. And he says that's an allegory for us to understand the difference between the church and those who follow God in faith and those that don't, that are enslaved by law. So now, is, is Paul saying that it didn't come true? No, 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 no. But Paul's using an allegorical approach there. And it's interesting. Um, uh, so Philo of Alexandria, his interaction with the church, I don't know. What do we know about the church in Alexandria? I've got to move. I'm taking too long. Um, Church in Alexandria. We know by Acts 2, Pentecost, that there were Christians from Egypt there, or I mean Jews from Egypt there. So they may have gone back and started the church. We don't know. But in Acts 18 we read, Meanwhile a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. This is 50 A.D. So by 50 A.D., there's a Jew named Apollos. And in fact, because of the Alexandrian thinking about looking at pictures and allegories... That's why some scholars think Apollos may have been the writer of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews is kind of has an allegorical approach to Jesus and, and ministry. So they say it must have come out of that Alexandrian mindset. Who else could have gotten acceptance except the Jew named Apollos for writing something like that? Also out of Alexandria we have the epistle of Barnabas which was written somewhere around... That's uh, I guess doubling for Barnabas now because that is the same guy that was Philo. I'm not <laughs> urging reincarnation here. Uh, that's a slip. Okay, so the epistle of Barnabas, very early church writing, a very early church writing, probably written before John's finished revelation, or had his revelation, before the Gospel of John, before 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And uh, it's very interesting because it reads the Old Testament as a collection of allegories. It, it reads it the way Philo might have. Let me give you some examples. And some of these we listen to and we think, well, I think that's a valid interpretation of Scripture. I mean, I certainly think what Paul did was valid. He was doing it by the Holy Spirit. Some of these allegorical things I'm going to show you, you're going to sit there and say, I, I don't have any problem with that. Some of them you're going to sit there and say, you have entered the twilight zone. Let me give you a sample. The promised land. Exodus, God says to Moses, you're going to go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. And what uh, uh, this Christian writing, the epistle of Barnabas says, is the promised land, that's where the Christians are going. And it's called a land flowing with milk and honey because milk and honey is the, the food of infants. It's, it's the food, and, and, and we're born again into the kingdom, so in that sense we're infants, and milk and honey is faith. Because it's faith that sustains us and it's faith that's the food for us as new Christians. I don't have a problem with that. That seems like that could be a picture that God wanted in addition to the literal truth of what happened. Okay? Here's another sample, the Day of Atonement. God said, you're going to get a scapegoat. On this goat, you're going to lay the sins of the people. And on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the goat's going to be sent out with the sins of the people. I think pretty clearly that's an image of Jesus Christ and what's going to happen later, right? And that's what the epistle of Barnabas says. It says Jesus is the scapegoat and it explains the process. Now, here's... Anybody ever read the Bible Code? You remember that book? That's the book where they gave number values to everything and then they figured out how they could get a computer to go through and find out about Hitler off the Bible. Okay, well, this is, this is kind of early Bible Code. It's got some of that in it. The circumcising of Abraham's household is interesting. In the epistle of Barnabas, they go back and they said, if you go back to Genesis 14, you're going to read that uh, uh, there are 318 trained men born in his household. And then three chapters later, Abraham circumcises those men, okay? So you got 318 men getting this circumcision. And here's what the epistle of Barnabas says. Epistle of Barnabas says, now in your Hebrew, and this is true, it's not written 318. That's just the way the NIV translates it, okay? In the Hebrew, it literally says 10 and 8 plus 300, which totals 318. Okay, you got that real NIV view of life. 
See, Epistle of Barnabas would have said the NIV, don't use it. It's destroying Scripture because literally the Scripture says 10 and 8 plus 300. Now forget that it was being written in Hebrew because in Greek these numbers are associated with certain Greek letters. The number 10, just not coincidentally first, in Greek is the number is the letter I, capital I, which for us is, is a J. Okay. The number eight, do you know what letter in Greek? The eta, it's written like an H, but it's our long E. It's, it's a, a eta, our long A. Um, J-E. Do you know the most common way to abbreviate the name Jesus in Greek? J-E. So the Epistle of Barnabas says the 10 and 8 is put in that order because that is an abbreviation for Jesus. And as for the 300, do you know what letter in Greek is 300? T, which is shaped like a cross. And so the Epistle of Barnabas says the reason that's written that way is to be a foretelling that Jesus would die on a cross. Okay, now that's a bit out there for me. Um, dietary laws. This is interesting for the Epistle of Barnabas. Do not eat pig. You can eat pig. You know why? That's not literal. Moses spoke spiritually. See, what you're really doing here, you want to know what that really means? It means don't hang around with people who act like pigs. That's what it says. So it's just saying, you know, don't eat pig. That means don't hang around with people who are lazy, who waller around all day in the mud and eat like pigs. That's all that means. You want ham? Go get some ham. Just don't hang with people who are hams. Um, now, the promises to Israel. In the Old Testament, you'll find tons of promises made to Israel, right? It says, okay, those aren't true. For Israel. They're all allegorical. The church is the real Israel. So all of those apply to the church. And I got to tell you, I've been in Sunday school classes, not at this church, at another one, where people would just cavalierly take the Old Testament and anytime they'd find a promise to Israel, they'd say that's a promise to the church. It's called replacement theology. The church replaced Israel. I don't think that's biblical. I think Israel, what, what's biblical is Israel has never been a genetic creature. The true Israel that's God's people that have the promise are the people of faith from the seed of Abraham, and the church has been grafted onto that. But God's not done with Israel, and that's the point of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Um, now, that's Alexandria. Let's go to Clement of Alexandria. He's one of the early principal leader teacher types at the catechetical school. He's the head of the seminary at 200 A.D. He says all truth is God's truth. And that's why he merges philosophy big time with Christianity. Um, we don't have very long, so we're going to skip through him. Um, um, except to say this. Because <laughs> this is, this is this. we saw today, I think, a brilliant sermon. A brilliant taking of Joshua and the story of Caleb and gleaning out of it some truths for us. But I am always watching sermons like that with a cynical, skeptical eye. 
I loved it. And I use it as an example of a good one. But I could find you examples that you and I have heard, I'm sure, somewhere in your life, if I went through your life with you, where people, instead of reading the Old Testament to understand what the Old Testament's saying, they take some parenting book they've read, or they take some uh, uh, book on um, how to be a better person, and they go back and they try to figure out how to uh, take those principles and stick it into a story. So they can use this story to say this is... When that story wasn't any more written for that than the man in the moon. Now, I do think the story today was written to show how Caleb's life ended. And uh, what happened at the end. And he, was, he finished well. And it's a wonderful way of looking at it. And I thought that was brilliant. But I'm always a little bit skeptical and cynical when I hear something like that. Because you've got to make sure it's way too easy to take Scripture and put our view on it instead of trying to figure out what it is and letting that be our view. See the difference? Okay. Um, Origen of Alexandria, a really incredible guy, very pious, born 185. His father was a Christian. And uh, his dad, in fact, was taken and, and arrested and was going to be martyred. Um, Origen wanted to go die with his father as a teenage boy of 14. And Origen's mother hid his clothes so that he would have had to go outside naked because it was the only way she could keep him from going outside to give himself up and die with his father. Um, God uh, uh, had Origen in 254 as a martyr. Eventually he did join his father and martyred him, but about 50 years after, 54 years after. At a very young age, he was very impressed with Scripture. He read Matthew 19, 12, where some men are eunuchs by choice because of love and devotion, and he self-castrated he castrated himself as a teenage boy because he wanted to be a eunuch for God. Uh, which means, I guess, that that's a bad picture because I don't think if you've been castrated you can grow a beard. So that's a better one. Um, whoever did that first picture did not know their origin very well. Um, he, uh, at the age of 18, was placed at the head of the seminary. He wrote over 800 books about God and the Bible in his time. An absolutely incredible man. But he had a Alexandrian approach to Scripture that to us seems a bit bizarre. He said there are three layers of Scripture. First is the body layer, and that's literal. And he says there's a little merit to it. Like the Ten Commandments, you can take those literally. Okay? He says there's a second layer, and that's every passage of Scripture also has a moral or an ethical layer that you try to understand. And that's the dietary laws. He said the moral to those, those are not to be taken literally. The moral to those is don't associate with pigs or whatever it would be like from the epistle of Barnabas. Then there's a third higher level and that's where the spiritual level is. Um, uh, 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 here's an example. And, and I picked one up, bless his heart, he's not here to defend himself, but this shows how you can sometimes go astray when you start doing bizarro readings of scripture. Okay, In Exodus 1.21 it says, because the midwives fear God, they made houses for themselves. And he says, of course that's nonsensical. Why would a midwife make a house for themselves? This, the, the Christian uh, allegorical understanding of this is midwives are Christians because Christians fear God. That's how you know. So when you read that passage, you know that that's talking about Christians. Because the Christians fear God, they made houses for themselves, houses in the sense of churches, which is a house of prayer. So this is a scripture he would use for a sermon or a teaching that Christians 
are to come together in a house of prayer. It's in the Old Testament. See? His problem is he was using the Septuagint, which is a bad translation of the Hebrew. So if you go back and read the original Hebrew, which our NIV people do, here's what the passage really says. Because the midwives fear God, he gave them families for their own. In other words, the midwives who couldn't have children because they feared God, God gave them children. They had families. That kind of blows this whole allegory and his interpretation. Now this is a dicey issue, and I'm out of time. But I want to say this, and then I can close up if y'all will give me two minutes. And I think technically we go to five after, but we try not to. This is a dicey issue. Certain things are clear. Anybody, almost anybody with a fair mind can read Scripture and understand that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's a no-brainer. That's not hard. Now, it may be something you don't want to accept, but it's not hard to see that Scripture teaches it. That's not cloaked in mystery. Okay? That, that teenagers, children can understand that and accept Jesus. Other things in Scripture are hard to understand. 1 Corinthians 15, 29, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people are baptized for them? You ever been baptized for the dead? That's a tough one. Okay. So what do we do? Also known as points for home. Well, we study to present ourselves to God as one approved, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed that rightly handles the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. Rightly handles the word of truth. I didn't give you a bunch of good answers to this because we're going to study this for the next however long God gives us to be in this class because what this class is about is church history is understanding how the church has unfolded God through the ages. And we'll see how they've done this with Scripture. But I will say this, study sensibly. Get a book like Gordon Fee's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. does a great job. I've tried to give you a little bit on the back, uh, uh, some four or five steps you might do of your lesson to study. And study in faith. When you come across something you don't understand, don't write off the Bible. Don't say, oh, well, that must be wrong, or oh, this is stupid, or oh, I'm stupid. Spend time studying it. Spend time praying about it. Spend time talking to others about it. And accept that God has here riches that you won't get on the first reading. And you won't get by the time you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100. There are riches in this to last more than your lifetime. And so it's worthy of study. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us a chance to be together. I do pray you'll put in everybody's heart right now as we end a gracious greeting for someone that they don't know or don't know very well. In Jesus' name, amen.